Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. I'm your proprietor, Tony Ortega. And this week we have a very special guest, someone I've known for quite a while, and whose history in Scientology and out of Scientology I think is really fascinating. Mark Plummer, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Always a pleasure, Tony. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, actually, don't know why I haven't done this sooner. Well, I'm glad we're making up for that because, um, you know, I, I've i been doing this for a while, but even when I was starting, you know, I heard about this guy, Mark Plummer, you know, that he was this amazing researcher. And this was back in the 90s when, of course, any kind of research about Scientology was risky. And I would always hear about you. Uh, fortunately, I got to finally meet you in 2015 when I came to Austin as part of my book tour. Very nice to finally meet you, and we've we've kept in touch. And uh, I just thought it was time, you know. I know not maybe not all of the underground bunker readers know you, and I thought we'd just uh, find out uh, what you know and what what you've been through. Cool. Well. Um, how do you want to proceed? Let's start at the beginning. Uh, where are you from? And uh, I think there may be some musical uh, history with you because I see you talk about that a lot on Facebook. It's always fascinating when you talk about some of these musicians you've known. And uh, and then how did you get sucked into Scientology, man? <laughs> well, I'm from Austin originally, born here, and grew up in New England north of Boston, in fact, for the oh. most part. Um, I've also lived in Connecticut, New Jersey, New Hampshire, you know, up on the East Coast, but uh, grew up mostly north of Boston. So that came about because my father died when I was young, and my mother remarried a serviceman and moved us up there to New I England see. because he's from there. Then after he abandoned my mother, after she had had her fourth child by him, I wound up back in Texas because of financial matters. You know, my mother couldn't take care of us all right, uh, on no income. <laughs> she right. had been a stay-home mom. So here I was back in Texas, and of course I went to the University of Texas, was working on a biology degree uh, in the early 70s. I had heard about Scientology a lot, and the word on the street with all my friends, the media, everything was stay away. It's a cult. Even then, even at that point, you were hearing that. Even back then, and wow. one of the things that even worked against that truth was a rumor that Scientology engaged in sex orgies, right? Oh. And that course isn't true to my knowledge i mean maybe there were individuals who did but it was nothing ever condoned by scientology as far as i know anyway i stayed away from it uh while i was going to college at ut i managed a restaurant oh. and um one of the employees i had hired had quit and kind of disappeared after that and um uh, in the meanwhile, I went through a divorce with my wife, my first wife, Kat, uh, first wife, Sue, excuse me. And uh, one day bumped into this ex-employee of mine and she looked like tremendously changed, like cheerful, looking up, not looking apathetic. She had put on a 
a healthy amount of weight, like gone from 95 to about 120 pounds. And she looked a lot better. And I asked her, hey, what's up? You know, and she said, well, I'm in Scientology now. Huh. And because of that, I had this perception and thought that, well, maybe there really is something to Scientology. And I'm intelligent, so I'll go in and check it out. And if it's bullshit, I'll know. And I'll walk. Right, right. You know? But I, I at least can check it out for myself instead of listening to everyone else. So. Yeah. All right. Well, it didn't stick. I enrolled in the communication course, and I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, when I completed and there was time to re-sign me on to the next course, the Hubbard Qualified Scientologist course, I literally laughed at the executive director uh Cindy Chadwell and her husband, the assistant guardian, Danny Chadwell, and turned and walked out the door. Now, let me just ask you now, uh, at this time, was it the Scientology had its org right across the street from the university, right? Is on Guadalupe? Is that it? That came about later, sometime okay. in the early 80s, I believe. Um, okay. I'm unclear because at that time when the Austin, Oregon, its present location came about, I was living in Los Angeles, so okay. I wasn't really up on things so in Los Angeles. Where was it when you were going? So back then it was at 2804, 2806, something like that, Rio Grande. Okay. Um, which is about four, let me see, about, about six blocks north and about four blocks west of the current location it's still okay. a university area but so right. oh okay i went in did a course it, it didn't work out during that time period um i was beginning to get very disillusioned with the music industry i had a oh. band okay and it fell apart because my first wife was having an affair with my best friend rick who was the guitar player lead guitarist in my band so it destroyed my marriage and it destroyed the band too. And I tried putting together another band and everybody I met, it seemed like they were really into drugs and meeting chicks and weren't taking it seriously, like a right. being professional. And um, so then I met this, this Kathy, you know, my employee and thought Scientology had helped her a lot. And I say it did to be fair. So I thought I'd check it out. Well, it didn't work with me. But during that time period, I had a very brief relationship with Kathy, like okay. romantic, you know, sexual relationship yeah. for about, I don't know, three weeks, maybe. And we decided that we weren't right for each other. We just weren't a good match. It wasn't that spark or that chemistry that we both felt should be there. And we went our separate ways. Then... A little over two months later, one Sunday afternoon, she called me up on the phone to let me know she was pregnant. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Now, at that time, I was 22. I hadn't yet turned 23, and there was no way I was ready to become a dad. And during, you know, the times when we were together, she had assured me that she wouldn't get pregnant because she was on birth control. So I was trying to be responsible and, and watch out for, for everything, you know. But 
she told me she wanted to have the baby and she was set on that and there was no no, no changing her mind and i'm like oh my god <laughs> i'm gonna be a dad and so okay i kind of accepted that and then what happened was as time got closer to when my first son was going to be born i started feeling really guilty like honestly i felt like i can't just turn my back on this kid he's my kid you know i have to be part of his life and so like an idiot <laughs> i went back to kathy and asked if we could give it another chance to see if we could make the relationship work for the children's sake okay and that's right. what we did and we gave it a good uh, almost nine years wow and um, you know through all of that um i can honestly say looking back now it never really was a relationship that ideally i would wanted to have had i sacrificed a lot and um, we ultimately split because i decided to leave the sea org and she wanted to stay in she's more married to the sea org than to me Okay, now you skipped a little bit there because you had oh, yeah. told me that you had just done a communication course. When, yeah. does, the C when does the CR come into the picture? Okay, so um, when we had our relationship to begin with, that was March 73. Okay. Uh, and when we were together for you know that month. By the end of that month, we had split up. Right. Then my son was born... Wait a minute. I'm, I'm sorry. March 74. <clears throat> then my son was born in December. And we got back together around December 74. And part of the condition of that was she insisted that I had to be a Scientologist. Okay. And so I did get involved again as a public member here in Austin. I redid the communication course. Uh, what they call retread and you can see a, a certificate for that on my website uh, warrior.zenu.ca uh, anyway so we were living together by the end of 74 december 74 i was involved in scientology again i redid that you know communication course and this time something definitely happened to where i snapped if you're familiar with that term of snapping yep in conway's book that describes the phenomenon to me okay i i will insist anybody who wants to discuss with me tr0 confront that that exercise at scientology called a training routine is a transinduction technique. That's not just my opinion, although I do hold that opinion, but I have it um, from uh, several experts that I have spoken to over the years okay. and discussed that drill with. And I mention it because to me it's significant because something happened to me to cause me to suddenly snap into a persona that I previously had not been. And all of my friends at the time commented, Mark, what happened to you? You used to be this happy-go-lucky guy. You played in a band, you smoked pot, you know, you 
They were fun. Now all you do is talk about Scientology. <laughs> and it was so true. I was just like, had become this robotic, like, gung-ho Scientologist that thought I need to get everybody in, his brother and mom and dad and sister and aunt and uncle and everything involved in it, right? Right, right. Anyway, I was very dedicated. Then what happened was uh, Steve Grant, the recruiter for a Sea Org Ash Show, the American St. Hill Organization, came to Austin on a recruitment tour and got me to sign a Sea Org contract. And he did that using Hubbard's brainwashing manual, believe it or not, um, and a book by Gary Allen called None Dare Call It Conspiracy. Now, I already had a bit of an awareness of experiments that the CIA had been doing, you know, under like Project Artichoke and so forth, and how innocent people had been kidnapped off the streets and used in experiments on, you know, mind control involving drugs. So I was kind of ripe for being fed a bunch of propaganda that fit right into that. And uh -huh. <clears throat> yeah. I perceived that the thing to do would be to join the Sea Org to help make this world a better place. I felt like there's a lot of things wrong with the world, you know, with society, with crime, with war, with pollution, you know, so forth. And that, that, you know, dealing with that and solving these problems had to do with making people saner. And that was the stated purpose of the Sea Org. To make and the just, world a smaller place. And when I'm you sorry. joined this when you joined the Sea Org, when you signed that billion year contract, yeah. where were you on the bridge at that point? I'm just curious. <laughs> I had completed the Hubbard Apprentice Scientology, the communication course, the very first basic introductory course. Wow. And, and that's it. I had had no auditing and done no other courses. I hadn't read Dianetics. I had read portions of it you know, on the um, course, the HAS course. But uh, I was pretty green. And in fact, wow. I had to get my wife at the time to agree to join the Sea Org too. She didn't want to. I had to help the recruiter close her or get her to agree to join too. Right. Wow. And then, of course, we were pressured to immediately go to L.A., report right away. And... Uh, I did. I pretty much gave away almost everything I owned, uh, rented a U-Haul, packed up, and I drove to L.A. Um, two days. Uh, day one, I drove 600 miles and spent the night at Narconon, El Paso. <laughs> In fact, that was the first time I ever met Jerry Whitfield during that Oh, trip. wow. That's yeah. right. That's where he was based. He was the assistant guardian, Narconon El Paso, in 1975, we're talking, uh, yep. October. Now, I had been uh, asked to take a man whose name I have long forgotten, because I never knew him. And I only had him in my car with me for part of one day, you know, during that trip. We got from Austin to El Paso. 
And the reason he came along on the trip was he was being accused of having caused the collapse, a Scientology's accusation, of Narconon in New Orleans. And he was ordered to a committee of evidence in Los Angeles at the Flag Operation Liaison Office, West U.S. And so I was asked if I could take that guy along with me. Wow. And he went, okay, but when he got to El Paso with me, you know, after that first day on the trip, he decided he wasn't going to continue on to L.A. Made up some reason why he couldn't go, having to do with his ex-wife or whatever. And that was that. He didn't go. And matter of fact, listening to that guy during the trip, I almost didn't go to L.A. because he was telling me what a bunch of bullshit Scientology is. (laughs) (laughs) What Scientology would call M-theta, right? Right. Which really was the truth. Too bad I didn't listen to him. But, (laughs) oh, my God. Long, strange trip it's been, Tony. Yep. Um, That was October 75 that I joined the Sea Org. And like I said, just about as green as you could be. Wow. Um, If a family member had been willing to loan me money back then to do courses, I probably would not have joined the Sea Org. It's my opinion. But uh, there was no one in my family supportive of, you know, my wanting to do Scientology, they all said, no, Mark, it's a cult, you know, and don't go to LA. It's a hellhole out there. You don't want anything to do. And so, um, you know, that was part of what the recruiter used to get me to join was, well, if you're a staff, you'll get all your courses and your auditing for free. Well, in exchange for working for us. So that was my answer for how I was going to become a trained auditor, which is what my goal was, I thought, you know, back then. Of course, I got to LA and after doing the um, Estates Project Force, or what they call Product Zero, which is your basic indoctrination into the Sea Org. It's kind uh, of the boot camp. It's kind of the boot camp for Sea Org, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I got slammed right into Treasury, into finance. I guess they realized, hey, This guy managed a restaurant. He did everything from hiring and training and payroll and ordering, paying for, you know, the inventory, everything. Like he's got a management background and he's college educated. I was a biology major, which I think I said, but yeah, you know. So they wanted you to get into treasury. What were the conditions like when you got there? (laughs) Well, for one thing, ASHA was insolvent. They had more bills um, pending, you know, unpaid, then they had the money to pay for them all. Wow. They had other expenses that had been committed that were unauthorized and they weren't getting paid. Like, And within one year from joining staff at ASHO and being posted in Treasury, um, along with working with the the commanding officer and the exec council and financial planning committee, I managed to get the cash bills statistic uncrossed, meaning ASHO became solvent again, like making more and, you know, spending less than what it made. And not only that, 
But within one year, I transferred over a million dollars into reserves. Um, and that was one of the biggest things. That's how the cash bills that grew so quickly, you know, putting money aside into a reserve account. While you so were doing I, that, while you while you were doing that and you were helping uh, Asho become solvent, what were your living conditions like at that point? Horrible. And I'm glad you asked that because when my wife and I got to L.A. in October, you know, after signing our SEWER contract, uh, they immediately, they being the commanding officer in the ACO area, said Jack Derman, D-I-R-M-A-N-N of Reed Slatkin, infamy. You might recall that name. Jack was the ACO area sec at that show. And he and a couple of others you know, executives told me and my wife, or my wife and I, that she was not qualified for staff. They claimed that she had a psych history. <laughs> and that was frankly nuts, because back in Austin, when we were going through the recruitment process, and questions were asked about had she ever been institutionalized in a psychiatric facility, my wife disclosed the fact that she had spent about a week or so in the Beaumont Neurological Center. And that during that time they had done tests and held her for observation. The reason she had been placed there was her mother thought that Kathy, my wife, was doing drugs when she was a teenager. During the test, they found out, lo and behold, Kathy's problem was she was hypoglycemic. And that was the cause of her lethargy and her general apathy towards life and so forth. It wasn't drugs at all. Okay. All right. So we disclosed all this to the recruiters and everyone that, you know, this had happened. She hadn't been given any shock treatment. She hadn't been hypnotized or lobotomized or PDH'd, <laughs> you know, or any of that. <laughs> Right. Paranoid bullshit that Scientology is worried about. You know, so she was apparently, you know, she was okay to sign a contract and uproot and go to L.A. with me. But then when we got there, she said, they said, you know, she's not qualified. So that meant she couldn't live in Sea Org birthing, in a, you know, Sea Org facility, which meant that I had to go live in a dorm with eight or nine other guys in the Hollywood Inn at 6724 Hollywood Boulevard. And you probably read about how, you know, the bunks are stacked three high to the ceiling and we all share one bathroom and it stinks and it's filthy and there's cockroaches and that's all true. It's overcrowded. It's just totally sucks. Okay. But that was where I had to go live. And my wife and child, my first boy, you know, Patrick, who at that point in time was only 10 months old, uh, they were placed in a house that was rented by Ruthie Weisberg. She lived off base because her son, David Weisberg, was a problem child. In fact, he was one of the kids later on that was on the children's RPF's RPF. Huh. Yeah. 
So my wife and son went to live with Ruthie, and there was another fellow that shared a room there in that house named Ray Peck. He was a a non-seorg typist in the letter registration section of Asheville Foundation. He lived there too. So I would get to see my wife and kid maybe on weekends. And I grew really tired of that, uh, not being able to, to live like a family. Yeah. The next big significant that happened, and by the way, um, during that time, I literally worked 104 hours every week. Yep. Every week. My normal schedule was from 8 in the morning until 10.30 at night at least. But that changed on come Thursday morning because Thursday morning I was on post by 8 in the morning. Well, financial planning happens Thursday night. So I worked straight through Thursday night, all day Friday, writing checks and going to the bank, getting cash for payroll, all that. And then 10.30, staff would line up outside my door and get pick up their pay. I might get done around midnight at the earliest on Friday night, which meant I worked 40 hours straight just from... Thursday morning at 8 o'clock until midnight Friday night. Wow. 40 hours in two days. And the other 64 hours were the other five days a week. So I was putting in an average of, you know, 12 hours a day or more for five days out of the week. And then an average of 20 hours a day for two days out of the week. And your pay, your weekly pay? Uh, at that time, it was a theoretical ten dollars per flag order. Uh, what was it? I don't know, thirty-seven, sixty or something. I'd have to look at my files, but ten dollars a week in theory. But we didn't always get that, of course. Amazing. Um, the first six years I was on staff, I had so many pay cuts along with all the other staff that. Um, after six years, I was owed $2,461 in back pay. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> and where were you uh, Where were you dining? Dining? E- eating, you mean? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Asho back then was at 2723 West Temple Street, L.A., when I first joined. You know, until they moved into the complex later on in 78, um, they had an agreement with a Cuban nightclub, huh. which was located at the corner of Benton Way, which, let me see, the northwest corner of Benton Way and West Temple Street. So it was a nightclub by night, and it was the Asho Galley, is what it was referred to, like on a ship. For breakfast, yeah, lunch, yeah. and dinner, okay. And we paid, you know, the the uh, the nightclub owner to use the facility because it had a kitchen in it. So that's where we ate our meals, and it was uh, about a block, not even a, a whole block from Asheville. And the the menu. Well. Uh, Nothing fancy. Uh, I will say during that those early years, 
I don't recall any rice and beans. That came later after getting into the complex where okay. we had a lot of that. But back then, you know, the breakfast was pretty good. We'd have bacon and eggs and toast, milk, and orange juice. It's kind of a regular breakfast. Lunch might be um, chicken or hamburger or whatever. I mean, it was decent food, I think. Okay, okay. Back, back then, to begin with. Um, interesting fact that Asho's guardian office at that time was located in a building called Nardoni Bail Bonds. The man <laughs> named Eddie Nardoni. N-A-R-D-O-N-I. And they had a building, I'd say it would have been probably like 2719 West Temple, but it's in between Asho and the galley, the, the Cuban nightclub. <clears throat> but the entrance to the guardian office was only via a set of stairs around the backside of the building to the second floor. The, the GO rented the second floor of that bail bond building. So it was kind of hidden. And we weren't to tell anybody, you know, that the GO was up there. So that I always thought that was kind of like, you know, even when I was in, I, I started having thoughts about why all the secrecy about all, all this stuff, you know, it's, like, uh -huh. it's right. supposed to be an ethical group and yet, you know, we can't talk about this and that, can't question that, you can't, like, what the hell, you know? I mean, my, my bad indicators, if you will, you know, in, in questioning things started very early on. And in fact, by uh, only a year later after being in the Sea Org, I asked to leave. I, I went to uh, ethics section and asked to be put on a routing form because I wanted to leave the Sea Org. And that came about because uh, there had been a mission, you know, a couple of missionaries fired into PAC, the Pacific Area Command, to do a number of things, including find a building, which ended up being the complex, you know, the old Cedars of Lebanon complex, but to also find a facility for the cadet org. Ah. All right. And these two missionaries, the mission first or in charge was Wayne Marple. And the second mission second was a man named Jack German. <laughs> the, he had been ACO area sec at that show and he was married to the commanding officer, Irene German. They had called uh, staff together in the briefing course practical room at Asho. Uh, and Val Ross will remember this because she was staff at the time this happened and she used to work in that course room, in fact. Um, they announced, the missionaries announced that they had found a cadet org facility but because it was so far from all the orgs in LA, parents would not be able to see their children every day because the travel time there and then back would cut across production, quote unquote, too much. And so parents would only be able to see their children 
once a week on the weekend if their stats were up. Now, that didn't sit well with me at all. I mean, there's no way. I'm going to have my little boy who by that time was about to turn two years old in charge, you know, uh, being taken care of, I mean, by nannies. And I couldn't even keep up with what was going on day to day. Like, you know, up till then, at least, I had been able to spend some time, you know, on family time, an hour a day to keep up with what was going on in his life. And I was one of those parents who always went to family time. There were parents who didn't. But um, I even volunteered for another position called Parent Liaison Committee Representative in an attempt to improve conditions at the cadet org, you know, for the kiddos. I was the ASHO representative on that liaison committee between the orgs and the cadet org. And where was the, where did they establish that cadet org at that time? At that time, the cadet org was on Melrose Avenue. Okay. Yeah, it was a hellhole. Matter of fact, the day I arrived there after having left Austin, you know, to get to L.A., I had arrived in L.A. at a gas station on Vermont Avenue and called Asho for instructions about where to go because they hadn't told me. <laughs> and Jack Dearman, the ACO area sec, said, go over to the cadet org on Melrose Avenue. And he gave me the street address. So I drove over there and um, parked in the back where they had a parking lot, walked into the lobby of the cadet org on Melrose and Oh, my God. There was no adult in the lobby. It was a big room, but no adults at all. Oh, wow. None. And there were a few, I'd say, my recall, there were three or four uh, infants, like, crawling around on the linoleum floor, which reeked urine, by the way. Oh. Really stunk bad, badly. And I saw that and I thought, oh my God, what have I gotten into? And honestly, if I had had the money, I would have turned around and gone back to Austin right away. Yeah, Cadetor was just a hellhole. Really horrible. In fact, later on, a bunch of us staff got pressed into pretending to be nannies because they were chronically in violation of California codes concerning the number of childcare workers in relation to children. There are laws about that, and they were so chronically undermanned that there were times when they would have an inspection by the authorities, and because uh, Scientology had a mole, uh, or what they call an ally inside of the agency, we always knew when a raid was about to occur, an inspection, unannounced inspection. Yeah. So I was pressed into service to be a nanny, even though my post was in treasury. (laughs) There were times I would become a nanny for a day to create the appearance that we were legal. Wow. That bothered me a lot. And this fact that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to see my kid all the time bothered me a lot. And so um, I had asked to leave the Sea Org. And um, 
Through that, I was sec checked for 17 weeks on several, you know, security checks. I mean, some of them were like HCO Form 1 Worldwide Classified Confessional, which is a confidential issue, it has 210 questions on it. That was just one of the many sec checks. They were custom made sec checks. Of course, they want to find out my crimes and why I wanted to leave staff. And I kept telling them, I just want to be a family. I want to see my kid. And Steve Grant promised me that when I signed my contract, I'd be able to see my kid every day. He even said that you all had a nanny for my son. You, you told me that my wife would be on staff too. You told us we would have a steward for our meals who would serve our meals. You told me we had that you, that you had a birthing space ready for us. They were all lies when we got to L.A. None of that was true. And, and I'm tired of, you know, I've done my part. I've worked my butt off, but you guys not upholding your contract with me. That's why I want to leave. Those so, hours, huh? And those hours and hours of sex checking, interrogation, were, were they intended to basically get you to give up the idea of leaving and, oh, yeah. Get you. Definitely, because not only was I sex checked for 17 weeks, but I got no pay during all that time. I was in a lower condition, assigned a condition of treason, right, for betrayal after trust. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, no pay. I had to continue to do my job anyway. And then on top of that, I had to do a men's project. So, I was wearing my butt off and no money to do anything. Couldn't possibly go anywhere without any money. Um, heck, my wife was still not on staff. Um, there was nobody in family I could turn to to help because they were all so upset with me for joining Scientology to begin with. They didn't want anything to do with me at that point. They were all like, well, you know, you made the decision, Mark, you know, now you live with it. You, you take responsibility for what you did. We told you, but you didn't listen. That kind of thing, you know? Uh -huh, right. <laughs> it's hard to go anywhere when you don't have any money. Oh, and by the way, yeah. I had gotten in an automobile accident and um, totaled the car that I had, which was my fault. It's the only accident... Um, other than they won recently where I rolled my car coming back from a trip. Uh, I remember you told me about that, right? Yeah, I'm lucky to be alive, my wife and I. But uh, the only other accident I ever had was that one in 1975 in L.A. when I was real new out there. I was tailgating was the cause of it, and I rear-ended a guy. Um, when I told him, I'm sorry, you know, it's my fault. Um, I don't have insurance because I just moved here from Texas, but I, here's my contact information, all my driver's license. I will take responsibility for the damages, uh, but it's going to take me a while because I'm in Scientology. He was immediately like, oh, I had a daughter involved with that cult. Forget about it. You know, have a nice day. I don't want to have anything <laughs> to do with you. Just wow. forget it. The accident never happened. You know, goodbye. Wow. All right, so I really lucked out, and I had nailed his rear end hard, you know, trying to stop and trying to swerve to avoid him. Yeah. But he didn't want anything to do with me. And when I went back to the org to tell them what happened, 
Jack Dermott said, well, you got to get that guy's word in writing that he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Okay? Otherwise, you're going to have to take a leave to make money to pay for the damages and whatnot, you know, take responsibility. So I did go back to the guy named Marty Goldman, and <laughs> I still have the paper to this day where he's, <laughs> it says, you know, in connection with the accident and such and such a date and time, I decided to, you know, forgive and forget all about it. Like, you know, oh, well, <laughs> that was how that got taken care of. Friends said, eh, who knows, Mark, maybe I had a trunk full of cocaine in there. You never know. Right. Anyway, um, so I had wanted to leave you know, by 1976, because I was already upset I wasn't able to live with my wife and son. Now they want to take my son and put him out in somewhere. They weren't even saying where this new facility was, this ranch for the cadets. Oh. So I wanted to leave. And I wrote a letter to L. Ron Hubbard, you know, thinking back then, 1976 that Ron actually answered his mail. I know better now, but back then I actually thought Ron was receiving and answering in mail. And I said, dear Ron, you know, you say in child Dianetics that parents should spend at least an hour a day with a child and you call it Johnny's time or something like that and do whatever the child wants within reason. How do you square that with the fact that now we're being told by the flag mission 1674 that they're going to move the cadets to a ranch and we won't be able to see our kids every day. And I got an answer back that said, well, my intention is laid out in pack base order series 18. If you haven't read those, I suggest you get copies and read all those issues. You know, series 18, 18-1-2-3. Well, okay. So I did that being a nice obedient you know, <laughs> uh, robot, right? Yeah. And I still had a question, like, you know, is this your intention? So I wrote back and told him then, and he said, well, you need to report to Qual and word clear the issues. By then, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is not even Ron I'm talking to, because, yeah, yeah, you know, this is just, this is bullshit. Anyway, I did word clear them anyway, and I wrote back again. And he's telling me, you know, whoever was answering was saying, yes, my intention is. And, and I just thought, you know what? Your book says to spend time with your kid every day, and that's widely accepted as something being written by you. Okay? It says so on the book. But these base orders, these are not written by you. They're authored by Wayne Marple, the missionary. Okay? So applying your, you know, policies, you don't follow that. You follow source, right? And that was a big problem. That was the first big crack in my dedication was early on after only being in the sea or a year. Well, then as fate would have it, um, and by the way, we, uh, we even appealed to the Guardian Worldwide, Jane Kember, asking, hey, why is my wife not being allowed to be in the Sea Org? She doesn't have a psych history. And she denied the petition and said, no, Kathy needs to do this re-entry program to make herself eligible, qualified for the Sea Org. 
and meanwhile, I was being sec checked, you know, every day for 17 weeks and with a series of different auditors. Um, ultimately, one day, the assistant guardian, Steve Huff, said, oh, Mark, uh, it's total arbitrary has been applied in your case. Your wife, Kathy, is not unqualified for the CR. She doesn't have a psych history. It's been a huge mistake. And they allowed her to come on staff. And I'm sure that was done to keep me from leaving. because I was a very valuable staff member. Because at that point, then, once they bring her on, then you guys could get a, a, at least a room and apartment to yourselves, right? Right. And we did. But we didn't have a room. I actually ended up working, moonlighting, for a printing company owned by a Scientologist, Bob Mills, Robert L. Mills, he owned Optimum Press, very well-known printer, ex-Marine, friend of mine that owned a press downtown LA in the Elks building on Parkview at 607 Parkview Avenue. I went to work for him every night and I worked part-time doing his books. And then when I was done with that, he had taught me how to run a 1250 multilith offset printer. So I printed promotional pieces for the orgs. I worked also in the dark room. Um, I worked in the bindery. I worked the cutting machine. Um, pretty much did everything except he had one big full color printing press that he only allowed himself and one other guy to touch. A very expensive piece of equipment and huge, by the way. Um, you know, that could print multi-colors at one impression, whereas a 1250, you do one color at a time. I see. Anyway, so, yeah, I had to pay for an apartment. I, I actually had an apartment at 1234 North Ferrindo Street, which is literally across from the, uh, the complex. And although the orgs had not moved into the complex yet in 1977, when this you know later part uh, was still going down and my wife had just gotten approved to be on staff. And, well, the FBI came and raided the complex in July. At that time, I actually lived one block from the complex and saw the raid in process, you know, in, in progress that morning as I was getting ready to ride my bike over to the org on West Temple Street. That's where Asho still was at the time. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> being raided. Of course, I didn't know anything about the Guardian office over at the Manor Hotel or FCDC. They didn't tell us about those raids too, but Hilarious story. My friend Mark Hansen, who was Central Files Officer for Asho Day, was doing quartermaster duty or security duty the morning that the FBI executed its search warrant. Poor old Mark Hansen was assigned treason for, quote, out security for, quote, allowing the FBI into the building. <laughs> And I thought, even back then, I thought, man, that's freaking nuts. You couldn't stop them. They used bolt cutters to cut the chain, you know, on the gate around the complex. They used a sledgehammer to smash in a door to get into the... 
how's he going to stop them? You know? Right. <laughs> I just thought that was nuts. So there were early cracks in the indoctrination, but not enough to make me leave. I don't know why. I don't have a good answer for that, except we were always told things are going to get better. You know, we're working to improve it, to get staff qualified, to weed out the dead wood and the PTS types and get more on policy. And like, you know, a hundred different excuses. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you at that time. Yeah. Can you remember what was your conception of L. Ron Hubbard? Well, um, I, I still had a belief that the man was a genius. Um, oh gosh, I'm thinking back now, we're talking about what, 48 years ago, 47, 48 years ago, I, I knew that he was lying when he said, you know, of course he, he was claiming he had didn't run the orgs, had nothing to do with it. He'd gone off the lines and was focusing on research. That was all a huge lie, and I knew it. And I still believed in his, you know, purpose of the Sea Org to get ethics in, to make the world a better place. You know, we're honest and people have rights and all that. I guess that's what kept me dedicated was the purpose. I didn't join the Sea Org to get my case handled. I didn't consider that I had the case. I considered that maybe because he claimed, you know, Dianetics could handle my nearsightedness, that maybe one day I would be able to not wear glasses. But other than that, I didn't have anything that I perceived as a a neuroses or a psychosis or a psychosomatic illness or anything. And so I had respect for Hubbard at the time because the lower level courses that I took, including the Hubbard communication course, you know, the Hubbard apprentice Scientologist course, um, some of the basic staff status zero, staff status one, staff status two, uh, the finance courses I took, they were all very useful. And my tale is a little bit different than probably a lot of people in that all the time I was in Scientology, which was a total of 10 years, eight of those in the Sea Org, I never had any technical training. Huh. I never became a coffee shop or book one auditor, let alone a Dianetic auditor or a grade zero or class zero auditor. All the training I did was administrative and almost all of that was in, in uh, finance. And I did a number of courses, you know, uh, director of disbursements, full hat, treasury secretary, full hat and internship the OEC Vol 3, which is your uh, your volume on finance, on treasury. I did the Sea Org Specialist Finance course, which is actually two thick volumes, each one about three inches thick. It takes six months to do that course. You do it every day. 
for two and a half hours. Um, I've been audits officer, financial planning chairman, ad council head. Um, I don't know. Can't even think of them all. But the only thing that was even remotely technical in nature was the uh, PTSSP course. I did okay. do that. Okay. That was required. It, it was a requirement to become a fully qualified and trained staff member. From the org view that I was PTS to my mother because she was counterintention to me being in the Sea Org. Right. I had tried to get her to become a Scientologist, actually, and she did even sign up for a course at the Austin Org uh, and was doing a course on the nighttime, you know, foundation hours they call it. But then the day came where she couldn't attend course one evening because, well, she had two teenage daughters, my sisters, Vicki and Christy, to take care of. And she was a single mom and some had come up where she just couldn't be on course. And they applied heavy ethics to her and just basically blew her off. She wasn't going to have any of that, you know. That's my mom. Kids come first. And um, so, you know, she got a bad taste about what Scientology can be all about. Did they want you to disconnect from her? They wanted me to handle her, you know, with good roads and fair weather type of handling. It, and they never gave me an order to disconnect, although it would have come to that if I hadn't been able to get her to kind of back off and at least just accept the fact that I was going to do what I'm doing. Um, so what led to you leaving? There, there were a number of things. Um, end of November 1981, my son, who was about to turn seven, came to me and said, hey, Dad, I want a Tonka truck for my birthday. Well, okay, right. We had just gone through nine weeks of that show of no pay at all. And my oh, wow. kid needed new shoes and socks and underwear and pants. And my wife and I needed deodorant, bath soap, razor blades, tampon, uh, you know, all of that. And we couldn't even buy that, let alone a Tonka truck. And I said, man, there's something wrong with this picture because my stats are in chronic affluence. And I feel like a degraded being. I'm not getting paid anything. And I decided to leave. I just decided, fuck it, I'm out of here. You all want to play this stupid game? Go ahead. But I'm done. And I blew very early in the morning of Thursday, December 3rd, 1981. I jumped on a plane at LAX and flew home to Austin, stayed with my brother. I went back a week later on the threat of declare. And then about eight months after that, uh, I was called up by the HCO area sec, Barbara Levine, Barbara Adams, and she said, Mark, come on back. You were right. The squirrel policies are canceled. All the SPs are off the line. Everything's all better now, blah, blah, blah. And like an idiot, I went back. <laughs> and that lasted from around November of 1982 until September 83 when I left for good. I realized by then, you know, Scientology will say anything to get you to join or keep you there. Anything. 
And it was just nothing but a bunch of lies from the very beginning. Wow. And that's the short version of why I left. It was, there were a lot of other things I could talk about, but those are some of the most significant ones. It's just a bunch of lies. Okay. Which, um, which you have documented so well. I mean, you've got so... Now, at that time, did you have a lot of documents with you, or was this something that you collected later? Well, I had a bunch of stuff, and when I blew and went back, I took a bunch out with me. I, I was ordered to leave the complex in March of 82. I'd been hanging around for three months waiting for them to get an auditor to give me my sec check, you know? And that's one of the ways they keep you is like, you know, if I had just left, they would have ordered my wife and child to disconnect from me. And I was trying to avoid that and did. But then I did something which upset Fred Hasney, who had taken over my position in treasury. And he wrote me up to uh, ethics and that resulted in a non-interpolation order and a lower condition and a threat of SP declare if I upset anybody. So I left that day. I, I had to vacate the premises immediately. And when I did, I carried out probably in the neighborhood of 11,000 documents, like wow. in boxes I had. Now, there were other stuff I had wanted to take. But it was removed from my office during the week that I was gone. Um, for example, I had a couple of very thick folders of every goldenrod, every ethics order. Oh boy, that was well, ever just, just to put just to put that in some, some perspective. Yeah. A few years earlier, the largest FBI raid in the agency's history yeah. resulted in a hundred thousand documents. And then uh, in 1980, well, early 80s, you, one person, took 11,000. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's basically, I estimate that based on how much room, um, you know, 10 reams of 500 sheets of paper take up in a box. Wow, wow. That's a pretty accurate count when I say 11,000. Uh, you know, I'd say that that's accurate within you know, a couple hundred anyway. So anyway, and then over the years, I continued to amass more. Well, like, I've, cer I've certainly been the beneficiary of that. You've sent me some terrific documents over the years, particularly about the cadet org. We were posting a series of those a few years ago and just the horrendous, you know, policies that were practiced on children. I know that's- Well, yeah, that cadet org collection, that was years in the making. I was scanning- for a long time, I have a flatbed scanner, and there's a friend who wanted, you know, to get it all, and she helped to gather people who would contribute to paying to have a printing company who had a high-speed scanner to, to get the completion done, get the project completed, I mean, and um, it ended up being 682 megabytes. Of, oh, wow. It just well, fit on one CD, a standard 700 megabyte CD. Okay, one last thing. One last thing I want to get into, uh, Mark, is where did you get the the moniker Warrior? Where did I get what? The name Warrior. They call oh, you Warrior. Oh, oh Warrior. Okay. Um, warrior is derived from Mars. I mean, Mark. Mark is derived from Mars, the god of war, and that literally oh, yeah. means brave right. warrior. 
At one point, I was warrior, W-E-R-R-E-O-U-R, which is like old, old English, I think. Okay. You know, for warrior. And, of course, Osa made fun of me saying I was warrior. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, so warrior was because I'm a desktop warrior. Now, anybody who knows me well knows I am a, a conscientious objector. Matter of fact, I was 1-0 deferment, you know, during the Vietnam War, which is okay. someone opposed to military duty. But so I am a, a warrior of words. Okay. That's how that came about. Listen, Mark, thank you so much for taking us through your Scientology journey. I know we've got a lot more to talk about, about when you, after you had left and the battles you've been through. And again, I've been a beneficiary of it. I really appreciate the, the documents you've sent me. And your friendship, you know, I know we talk uh, privately, we talk about some of the things that we've been through and, and it's really always been, I've always appreciated the things well, that you've had to say. So it was never about me or being a big critic or activist. It was what I did was to help other people. And I just want to add that there's a, a nasty libel being spread about me by certain people who I will not name, but they're claiming that I don't do anything unless it's for money. That is so wrong. It's not even funny. For example, you know, I worked seven years of my life helping Ken and Dandar alone on the McPherson case and never asked for nor received a penny from him for all the help I gave him. Okay, And that's maybe the next time that we do a podcast, I can get into some of the things I've done over the years, but um, well, listen, listen, that's a common, that's a common thing thrown at people like you and me by people that don't understand what we're doing or why. And, uh, I understand why you're doing what you're doing, Mark, and I've always appreciated it. And listen, we're going to keep bringing out stuff about this organization and trying to warn people. And I just really appreciate you coming on the podcast. All right. All right. Well, you're welcome. Thanks. Right on, man. I'll talk to you later.